0: Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. You'd be hard-pressed to find a kid that at some point in their life didn't want to be a professional athlete. But how many had the fortitude to give what it takes to get to that next level? Well, that's not the case for Eric Rabian. In fact, Eric had the gumption at an early age and knew that not only did he love sports, But more importantly, he had a desire to do whatever it took to be better than everyone else. And as you will learn, this desire, while it's very important, is only one piece of the puzzle of success. During our conversation, we discuss all the other pieces that helped create Eric's puzzle. He shares with us the importance of preparation, what it means being the youngest head coach in the country of a university-level men's and women's tennis program, how luck filters into your success equation, or not, and the magnitude of follow-through. And because of all the hard work and relationships that he's established throughout the years, Eric is living a life by design rather than one of default. Listen for yourself. And we are rolling. (laughs) I'm happy to be sitting here with a good friend of mine's friend, Eric Rabune. Eric's got an interesting background. He's done a lot of things that most people wish they would have done. (laughs) He's a big kid that doesn't necessarily need to grow up. He's made some amazing relationships, doing a lot of fun things, meeting some really interesting people. And now... He's culminating all the years of experience, the people that he's met, the contacts that he has, and he's taking his career and his life to the next stage by building a consulting business that essentially connects his past interests and people with opportunities. Eric, I'm sure I'm not doing you justice. If you don't mind, take a minute, explain your background and what brings you here today.
1: I grew up in Long Island and I was lucky enough to have a father who got me very involved with sports at an early age, not only tennis, but baseball, basketball, everything. My mom was also athletic. She got me into different sports, swimming and taekwondo. And I was So I was very well-versed in a lot of athletics. And I gravitated toward the playground, the fields. I was just very passionate about sports in general, individual sports, team sports. Whatever I could do, I wanted to play sports, and I knew that eventually I'd be involved in sports the rest of my life. You knew at an early age, yeah, I just I felt it I had it more than my friends. I mean going out it was important for me to win and important for me once I lost to go out and really work on my game, for example, I was an early time that was very upsetting was when I got cut from the I guess it was, I was in the seventh grade and I got cut from this seventh and eighth grade basketball team. So I was obviously upset and I probably wasn't going to play. So I went home and told my mom and she said, you know what, that's tough. Just go out and get better. But it was hard as a seventh grader. I was 12 years old, what my friends think and all these different things. So I really vowed to myself that when I came back in the eighth grade, I'd be the best player. And I was one of two or three good players and I had a very successful high school career. And it would prove to me that through a little failure, or not necessarily failure, but a tough situation for a 12-year-old, that situation helped me in a lot of areas of my life. I mean, nowadays, they don't probably cut kids like they used to, but it's tough when your name's not on the board. And then I knew right then and there that it's always going to be on the board, and it's going to be always a starter, and I'm always going to be successful, whether it's playing baseball, tennis, basketball, whether I became a black belt in taekwondo. Now, later in life, I had a 20-year successful college career. So after high school, I got a tennis scholarship to a small school up here in Westchester, Concordia College. had a successful career. I think I won 80% of my matches, graduated in four years, and I still had a taste for wanting to improve. So I moved to Florida for a few years and trained with some really high-end coaches. And I played a little professional tennis probably for about a year and a half, just to kind of taste what the professional world was. And I knew at that time, to be a professional athlete, I needed five more years of dedication probably because to be a great tennis player, even nowadays, the average age of a Slam champion right now is 28 years old. Actually, Federer, who just won the other night, is 36, going on 37. So the age has changed from the days when people were winning Grand Slams under 20. So I grew up in the era where Grand Slam champions were Agassi, Sampras, Courier, Chang. But anyway, that led me, after my decision to walk away from tennis as a professional, I had the opportunity to go and get my master's in sports ecology at the University of Northern Iowa. It's interesting how I ended up there, but... I ended up there, and I was able to get my master's, and I became the youngest head coach in the country. I think I was 24 when I became the head coach of men's and women's tennis at the University of Northern Iowa. And I was stuck into the office with the wrestling team, and I learned a lot about Iowa Obviously, the state sport is wrestling, and tennis is obviously not a big sport, but it gave me the opportunity not only to get my master's in sports psychology, but to kind of create what I wanted to create, which was a successful team. It took me four years there to turn around the programs and become successful. And then I ventured on to St. John's, where I spent another six, 17 years. And I knew it took a little longer than I expected, but I finally was pretty successful. I won three Big East titles in a row at the end. I was a four-time coach of the year. I had multiple academic All-Americans. I had multiple awards, not only as a coach, but my team, the university. So I was very proud of my time there. And then I knew a I change needed. Uh, I spent over 20 years in college coaching. I knew that I could use, take my skill set and go to the real world. And I thought that the consulting world would be great for me. It gives me a lot of flexibility. And I am a team builder, and I know how to fix situations that need to be fixed whether from my experience building teams so that's where i and through our connections through my network i'm sitting in front of you and hopefully this is a relationship that we could establish and do a lot of wonderful things together
0: yeah i have a good feeling about that so thank you pat mckenna <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did you become at his young age to become the coach 24 years old yeah. is that clearly not normal how did that come to be well the coach at the time when i got arrived was actually a skiing instructor. And once
1: she saw that I had a lot of knowledge in tennis, she ended up resigning. This happened very quickly. She actually resigned the first semester I was there. And they actually interviewed many, many other coaches, which was surprising. And the team obviously wanted me. And in the end, it just the stars were aligned and I became the coach. And I was in the middle of my master's. And I thought, you know what? I'm the head coach. It wasn't my plan. My plan was initially to go there, get my master's, and go get my PhD. But I had um, an interest. People were, I was good at what I did. And people followed me, and I knew how to build a team. And I had a lot of self-confidence. And I just went with it. And so it wasn't planned initially, but I just evolved into that.
0: Tell me about as coach. I know different programs, it varies. But how much of the role was pure coaching? How much of it was recruiting? How much of it was all the other ancillary things that are involved in making a winning team? I inherited a
1: very bad program, both on the men's side and the women's side. And I knew it was going to be at least a minimum of three years. You were head coach of both? Head coach of both. And I had one assistant, I had a GA of some type. And I knew it was going to be really three years. So I kind of looked at the lay of the land. I knew the conference was structured a certain way. And I just created some goals for myself of what I want to do on the men's side, what I want to do on the women's side, and what type of athletes I want to bring in. And I needed to bring in, obviously, Iowa is not Florida, so you have to bring in athletes who are willing to go to school in Iowa and get a good education and build a program with me, along with me. So they have to buy into the philosophy. And my philosophy is that you really have to look at your game, obviously, how you play the game, and also how do you prepare. My success over the years has Everybody talks about game day and what happens on Sunday, as using the analogy on in football. But really, people who win on Sunday, they win during the week. And I always was a coach that believed in preparation, getting to the facility early, making sure you're eating right, making sure you're preparing. If you're sick, shut it down. I'm a big believer. If you're not ready to go and practice 100%, shut it down. It's better to rest.
0: You know uh, Vince Lombardi's famous saying? No. Poor preparation leads to piss yeah. poor performance. Yes, yes, definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely.
1: And so I've watched successful other coaches. Obviously, this Sunday, Bill Belichick will be again for the 10th time. And they all go back to the preparation. And everybody looks at it and loves the lights. But I really focused my whole career on preparation. And whether it's the right racket, whether it's the right shoes, whether you're wearing one pair of sock, two pair of sock. Really, what are you putting in your body before the match? Are we drinking a lot of Gatorade? Or were you drinking alkaline water? What are we doing beforehand? Are you sleeping, getting good night's sleep? Are you eating complex carbohydrates the night before? Or are eating chicken wings? Why are we doing this? What are we doing this for?
0: What are the things that you're looking for when you're recruiting good athletes?
1: I was looking for tennis IQ, the knowledge that they had they might not be very good or where they I want them to be, but the willingness to talk about what they want to do when they're on the court. So in a match situation, I need to have a conversation as a coach, if you're losing, how I can turn this match around. And if your tennis IQ is not there, it's hard to have a conversation of how you're going to break down your opponent. Because in the world of tennis, it's very individualized. You're playing against an opponent and they're winning. So how do we turn it around? So you have to have a lot of understanding of the game and realize there's ebbs and flows of the game and that the opponent might be playing well for 15 minutes. But how are we going to turn it around? And then it comes back to, obviously, when you're in that moment of losing, you start by your attitude. How is your attitude? Is your attitude great? Okay, that's check. Are you taking enough time in between points? Check. Are you telling off? Is your body feeling good? Are you making sure you're hydrated? Are you taking a piece of banana to give you a little sugar boost? Where are you? Is your, how's your mind feeling? Are you bringing in negative emotions? Are you thinking about the past or you're in the moment and you happen to be losing? So once I get the athlete in that state, now we can start focusing on not the winning, but turning it around from the losing position to the winning position. And so all these areas of discussion are critical to winning and losing. Because at the end of the day, when teams lose and you watch on TV, oh, the team lost, oh, the team won, people don't really understand the winning and losing. Because everybody's the same level, especially in professional sports. And in college sports, pretty much everybody's the same level. It just comes down to preparation and how you're going to perform in that moment.
0: So they say football is the sport where the coach has the largest impact. Where does tennis fall in that spectrum?
1: I think you're looking at 5%, which in the course of a tennis match, if you're playing, say this match, at the score is 6-4, 6-4, and that's 20 games. 10% would be two games, maybe a game. or You're talking about five points, six points, seven points. But in a 6-4, 6-4 match, it's a difference between winning and losing. I would always make sure – so in the world of college tennis, you have six matches going on in singles and three in doubles. So I would look at these matches and pinpoint where I believe the, I could help that athlete. Some athletes were not being able to be helped. But I would pinpoint and know from practice and know from past experience who I could impact that day. And some days I couldn't impact anybody. But the days that I could impact and the moments I could impact – were the times that I went to that athlete, for example, the number three singles player, knowing that the match is going to come down to him or her. And I would sit with them and be very patient and get into the ebbs and flows of the match and say, what are you trying to accomplish? How are you feeling emotionally? What are you thinking about? i have kind of do a survey in the middle of the competition. And then usually my instincts and my experience locked in and then I did the right thing. And... It takes a lot of um, experience, a lot of knowledge of the game, and willingness to not just coach the athlete the same way, be flexible to what the athlete's going through. So sometimes athletes are injured. So they'll say, coach, I'm injured, and my left leg, I can't really push off. What do you suggest? So now you're dealing with not only the opponent, you're dealing with an injured athlete, and then you injure sometimes the player is hungry. They're getting dizzy or they're feeling like they're going to faint or their blood sugar's low or they're burning. So there's constantly things that happen in the battle and you have to just, as kind of the commander or the captain or the general, you have to survey where you're going to impact. And I was very fortunate to be smart enough to pick the right moments within matches
0: to impact that match. So do you think your success is – I mean, obviously, it's an aggregate of everything, but is it more – your skill set is more in the moment? Is it more in getting back to your preparing them for the moment?
1: I guess what I'm finding in my current career as a consultant, I have a very good ability to see the holes in a situation and see how I could kind of mend that situation and make it kind of whole again and move on. So using the sports analogy, I saw that obviously everybody wants to win. But where can I fill in the holes to get from point A to point B and get winning rather than losing? The other team wants to win. The other players want to win. Everybody wants to win. They're not going there to lose. So I looked at the things that people didn't look at. There was an interesting story from, I guess this was, the third championships that I was part of. I think this is two years ago, the last of the three championships, it was a rain delay. And we were at the all at the hotel, and the match was supposed to start at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I got back to the hotel at about 9.30 when there were torrential rainstorms. We were located in South Carolina, and the rain is very dark clouds. And all of a sudden, about 9.45, I started to see this sun come through the clouds. And we had just got back to the hotel in the rain delay because the hotel was probably about 10, 15 minutes from the location. Mm -hmm. And the referees and the tournament director said, We want to wait for the courts to dry and we have to all these different things. So all of a sudden, I look outside and I say to my assistant, we're going back to the courts. My assistant looked at me like, What? Why are you going back to the courts? Said, My gut tells me that the clouds are gonna open up and those courts are gonna be dry by the time we get back. Lo and behold, we got back. And we were able to prepare for the match an hour and a half more than the opponent because the opponent had not seen this and decided, you know what, I'm going to show up at 11 o'clock for 11.45 match. But we were there at 10 o'clock. We got to practice. We ate together. We got a little stretching in. The match was won in that moment. It wasn't won when we started the match. And then when the match is over, the coach was so surprised that he had lost. He didn't see why he had lost. He had just seen the performance of his team not being able to win, whereas I saw we won in the moment that I made the decision when I saw the clouds open up that we have to go to the facility and we have to get extra hitting in and we have to get out of the hotel. Because the tendency is when you stay in a hotel prior to a meet or a game or a contest, it's more of, oh, you're going to sleep, you're going to relax, you're going to talk to your girlfriend or boyfriend, you're going to do homework. I needed to get them out there into the Competitive nature, yeah. so that was an example where we won had nothing to do with who's better; had to do with just we were there earlier.
0: Hmm. So you've had a good career. I got a bunch of friends that are in the collegiate world as well as the professional world, and turnover can be somewhat high. What kept you at, at St. John's for so long? I
1: didn't believe I had unfinished business. I had taken over a
0: program that was really in the dumps, no facility,
1: team was very disengaged, and it took about seven years to turn it around. So we had a lot of success the last eight years, eight or nine years. But the first seven years was really cleaning out the rough stuff, figuring out what kind of athlete I need to recruit, figuring out myself how much time it takes to really build a team. What is our goal at the time? In the tennis in the Northeast, it's all dominated by the Ivy Leagues. So I knew, it was, how can I compete with these Ivy League schools in tennis? That's probably their premier sport around the country. So in this region, there are probably 43 teams that compete in this region. So my goal initially was, okay, let me get in the top 10 of the region. And then I was in the top five and let me beat all the Ivy League schools. And then kind of those were my initial goals and try to be one of the players in the region. Obviously the Ivies are very established in tennis. They're very established academically. Their coaches have all been there for a long time. They have a lot of prestige. So I wanted to be a player within that world, and I did it. And so it took me 16, 17 years, and it took me time, and I was able to fulfill that. So I wish I could have done it in five, but it took longer than I thought. And to get the right chemistry of players, especially tennis who are coming all over the world, Americans, international, and getting the right mix as well as getting the right assistance takes a lot of time.
0: That's impressive to be able to be just playing with them, let alone winning, because I know what their recruiting is all about. And sometimes just their name at this point does it. So St. John's didn't have that allure. Tell me about some of the relationships that you've developed with some of these kids throughout the years. Well, because I've recruited so much internationally,
1: I didn't have a big recruiting budget. So I had to use my contacts from college. For example, a college roommate of mine is from Brazil. So I had to utilize him and call him up and say, hey, Ricardo, I need an assistant with a player. Hey, do you know this guy in Colombia who I'm recruiting? Or I had some Mexican contacts and I would say, hey, do you know this person? I would call people up. One of my close friends is Serbian. So I went into the Serbian market and Romanian. And so I used my contacts that have developed over the years to really recruit for me. And basically I would say, hey, I have a player I'm recruiting. Do you know them? And I would utilize my contacts and would say, oh, I heard of him, he's pretty good, he's from a good family, kind of give me a little background on what that player was about. And then when I'm speaking to the player, it was mostly on email or sometimes on the phone, I didn't have the ability to go and have recruiting visits and bring them to New York. And coming from Romania to New York is a big distance. I had to figure out, using my network, how that particular player might fit into my system. And I would just get their opinion. I wouldn't really have them go and watch them. I would just get their opinion on that particular player. I would ask them different things. So over the years, I established a lot, big network, and I kept on calling these people up and saying, Hey, do you know so and so? Do you know this person? Oh, I've heard. And as long as I hear they're come from a good family, then in the world of tennis, you know, they're ranking pretty much, you know, that they're from a good family. They're coached by a certain player and they'll fit into my
0: system. How are you able to maintain with all these different hats that you're wearing? How are you able to maintain all these relationships?
1: I'm very good at following up. If I haven't heard from someone in the course of, say, two weeks, three weeks, I go through my list of contacts and I'll send them a quick text. A lot of the international, maybe I'll do it through Facebook or I'll do send them an email, do Different apps to just keep in touch with them. Maybe I'll see them on Facebook and then I'll call them. Say, haven't hey, I heard from you? How's it going? What's going on? I have a good way of knowing the right time, especially if I travel to go visit someone or they come to New York or they come to Miami where I'm currently spending a lot of time. I'll say, Hey, look me up. Hey, let's get together. And whether it's just a quick coffee or just a little conversation, I believe that goes a long way. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't have to be an exhaustive conversation in terms of like, tell me about your whole life. But hey, by the way, let's catch up. And I have a tendency to have a good rapport with people because I have good relationships. And I just contact them. And it's pretty easy. It's a natural thing. I don't sit on Mondays and go through my entire phone and say, oh, I haven't spoken to so-and-so. But through the course of my daily world, whatever subject comes up, it's like, you know what? I haven't spoken to them or her. They wrote me a nice email. Let me call them.
0: So you're conscious, you make a concerted effort, though, to stay in touch with people.
1: Yeah, I think an interesting, Walter Isaacson, who wrote the Steve Jobs book, asked Steve at the end of his life, what's he most proud of? And everybody's like, think he's going to answer, oh, I made the iPhone, Mac. He's like, it's the relationships that I built and sustained that came through at the end of his life that he realized were most powerful. The group that he put together to make these great gadgets that we're using. And it's very profound. Someone who's completely self-centered and wasn't really into the family and wasn't really into other people. And he's portrayed as this very self-centered person talked about the group and the people around who helped build this, the Apple computers that we are today. And basically at the end of the life, you're going to realize the relationships you built. You're not going to think, Oh, great. I have a lot of money because you're not going to have that money so I think it's important about relationship building and sustaining those relationships. They don't have to be like you're going to dinner all the time with the people, but catching up over coffee or catching up over just on the phone. It's nice. Nowadays, we're just texting and emailing and messaging. We never really get on the phone anymore. But I try and do my very best to sustain my relationships by getting together. I'm getting together with three childhood friends tomorrow night. I'm 46. We've been friends since we were seven. So we've been doing it for almost 40 years, getting together simply. Hey, let's go grab a bite and talk. And when you go out with someone who you've been friends with close for a long time, everything is natural. It's smooth. And so that's what the type of relationships I build, especially now that I'm a consultant. I try to build a relationship with someone, build a trust, build a mutually benefiting relationship where they feel like they're getting something and they're giving something and not dollars and cents constantly.
0: You just touched on so many great, points about relationships and networks. And it was just awesome just to hear a couple things. It's funny, the past few people that I've had in the show echoing a lot of the same sentiments. So there's a clear common theme, You know, the follow-up, huge. There's so few people, that's such a differentiator. A lot of people talk and talks easy, but the follow-through is huge. It shows that you listened, it shows that you were present. And it just says something about your character when you follow through. So that's huge. And just taking the time People like to hear from you. I'm sure that a lot of your messages and texts and emails don't fall on deaf ears. They're probably very appreciative to get that email that says, Eric, I'm sure you would appreciate that too.
1: We're all here that kind of in it together. We're all, we should be on the same team and help each other. And if I hear of my friend doing a project, I have a friend, obviously, went back to Brazil, he's changing careers and he's doing something that I know a lot about. So he called me up, he says, Eric, I'm stuck here. So I just spent half an hour with him. And it kind of made his day. Not that I gave him any particular thing, but just talking about how he could be successful in this new role that he was taking on, he felt so appreciative. And when you hear that appreciation, or somebody gives you a bottle of wine for just having a chat, or somebody takes you out for a beer because you've done something, That's really where you feel good about. It's that exchange of, "Hey, you gave me some great ideas. I give you some great ideas." Bonding over a glass of wine or a beer or a drink. Really, at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. And then, obviously, if you can monetize on these deals, or he can make money, I can make money. We can kind of do it together. That's great. But that's not my motivation. And so, the projects I'm currently working on with one person or with two people that I want to have a good rapport with. One, I do have a good rapport, so I'm willing to go into business with him. And the other, I'm developing rapport where we could then have further business. But you really want to have a good connection.
0: Completely agree. Let's talk about your new business because I think it's very fitting for what you're doing. Eric's consulting. He's essentially, he's got this amazing Rolodex. And you can name names if you want or not, but talk about some of the people that have come through, whether it's your program or just your life, and to give people uh, an understanding of not only just the depths of the relationships that you have but the breadth because through tennis it's obviously it's a great sport it typically attracts people that are pretty well to do and pretty interesting in general so you know a lot of interesting people talk about them
1: i guess i got from my father who was very involved in tennis and he was a big networker and i learned how to be a networker i actually recently did it i wrote it down i have basically 25 people that I regularly speak to in anywhere from a friend of mine I'm going to see tomorrow night who I guess he's in charge of a eight or nine billion dollar hedge fund to a friend of mine who's an editor of commercials to a lawyer to a people who are successful in real estate and even my mother who's a great architect and engineer to the other day I was with my cousin who has a startup financial service business. I have, I'm very lucky to say, 25 to 30, maybe 35 people that are in my network. And they have been very successful. And a lot of the times I call them or discuss ideas that I have, And I have a lot of ideas.
0: When you say your network, you mean your like tight network that they're called – Okay. And the reason I'm having you quantify that is because they say that the average person nowadays has one, maybe two people. Oh, okay. Maybe. Okay. And they did a study. It's crazy. They did this study about what are the common traits of longevity. And they found this one area in Italy. I forgot the name of the town, but it's where they have the most centurions – that live there. There's a bunch of people that lived over the age yes. of a hundred. Yes. And they did this study. Malcolm and, Gladwell this is one of his books, right? Um no, it's not. He might have. I don't know. Okay. I didn't read that. But essentially the top two reasons that people live to this length. And it's not like yeah. you think diet. Diet was like low yeah. and exercise low. The number one was a relationships. And the second one, I forgot what it was called, but it's essentially relationships also. And then there's a big margin of difference between everything else that falls thereafter. The fact that you're telling me you've got 25 to 35 people, what they recommend is that if you should have a minimum of three. Oh, okay. And most people don't. They have one or two. And if you really think about what we're talking about and from a depth of relationship, 25 to 35 is amazing. So I cut you off. I'm sorry. You're on a good tangent.
1: When I say 25 to 35, those are people that I've eaten with, we've spent time, whether gone away, whether we've spent through the years, we might have worked together and then we kept in touch. Those type of things, whether there's a childhood friend who maybe lives on the West Coast who I haven't seen as much. College friend, that sort of thing, who I check in here and there, but 35 people that if I need to call up tomorrow and say I need your advice, or I even actually need you to come and I need your help, would stop everything they're doing and come and help. That's to me. At the, I'm really lucky, and then I have another network of.
0: Well, it's of, preparation. Yeah, you prepared for yes, this. Yes, you didn't. There's no luck. Yeah, yeah. Luck so, is when opportunity meets yeah. preparation. Yes.
1: So those 35 are. A group. And it's interesting when you're doing this. I recently started speaking to a young man who is in the beverage world and he is doing some interesting things. And it's interesting when you open your world up right away, somebody could kind of fall into your network and then they're like giving you this great insight. And then I then in turn give him some great insight. So if you're going around kind of going to the same old people and not really hearing new things from other people, you get a little stuck. And I think it's important, as I do have that network, I too, at the same time expanding it. And a lot of times in any world, people fall off a little. They get busy. They have families. They move, that sort of thing. But I think when you go down this path that I'm on is then you pick someone else up who's like, hey, let's get together. Let's have a drink. What's going on? And it's a lot of synergy. And I think you have to be open to those opportunities.
0: Yeah, well put. So your business, really interesting. You've got this amazing network. You obviously get deals thrown at you all the time. How do you filter out? Because there are a lot of bad deals out there. How do you figure out? So
1: usually I'll meet someone and they'll either be a part of a company, a foundation, mostly a company, maybe a school. They'll have their own startup. Basically, we'll talk. I'll get a brief understanding of what they're looking for. And then I'll go back and I'll do some due diligence. I'll do some research on that particular area. If it's a foundation, I'll look at other foundations, what they're doing. It might be a foundation. All their numbers or their financials are public knowledge. So I'll go into it. I'll delve into it. I'll ask my network of people, hey, do you know these board members or do you know these people? And blah, 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 blah. I'll try to then meet with as many people around that network or that organization, that foundation. And then I'll do an assessment, and I'll give it to whoever I'm speaking with, whoever, this particular case, it was the CEO. I gave him my assessment on what I see, what am I recommended, this is what I recommend, and this is how I could deliver them. So I do an assessment, I do recommendations, and I do how we're going to deliver it. And I do that with the same thing. And so there are situations that come to me when I can't really grasp the assessment process. Either they're not really giving me all the information, so I really can't even get to the recommendations because we're still caught up in the assessment. Or they see things differently than me. Their goal is sales to this particular community. For example, they want to sell their product to the middle to upper class. And I see their product should be into the middle to lower class. They see their product at the specialty stores. I see them in Walmart and Target and Costco. So when you start to have a conversation and they see the vision differently than yourselves in the assessment process, it's better than to say, it was great meeting you. It was great to have a lunch with you. I understand your product. But we have to move in a different direction. And I said, maybe down the road we could pick it up. And so the process is again like recruiting, again like coaching. You have to see your impact. And if your impact is not going to be even that 5%, like I talked about the difference between winning and losing, just move on and they could find someone else that maybe could fit the role for them. And I think one of the things over the last six to nine months of doing this is that a filtering process has gotten a little better. So I'm picking people and foundations or people and schools or people and companies that have a little more foresight of where they're going, where their growth is,
0: Are there any types of projects in particular that you're partial to? For example, if someone's listening to this and they want to engage your services.
1: I have a lot of experience with schools, prep schools, colleges. I don't have a lot of experience other than my kids are in elementary school. And usually private schools are looking to focus on the ages of 13 to 17. They're high school kids. Colleges and universities, definitely. And most sports, I'm very connected and have network in almost all sports, whether it's professional, whether it's college, whether it's fencing, whether it's football, whether it's strength and conditioning, whether it's nutrition. In the so you're not tennis-centric. World, no, definitely not tennis-centric. And definitely, I have a very good network in, in tennis, but I have also a very good network in the other worlds of sports. And if I don't know, I could call someone. And that's really nice to know. You could call someone who could give you insight on what direction you need to go.
0: Yeah. And if someone wanted to get in touch with you, are you okay?
1: My information is rebuneric at gmail.com. It's R-E-B-H-U-H-N, Eric, E-R-I-C, at gmail.com. And that's the best way to get in touch with me. I'll probably get back to you that day.
0: Do you have a rule of thumb in terms of, and this is also just a good networking question in general, in your response time? I try to respond
1: within a day or so. If I can't give you a long email and explanation, I'll just have a short email. Thanks for the introduction. I'll get back to you in the next few days. I'm traveling or busy or what I'll do is I'll receive the email. I'll see what they're asking. I'll see what kind of company or where they're from. I'll assess the situation. I might call them. Please send me your number. I want to give you a call to get a little more background. Or I'll just respond and say, hey, nice meeting you. How can I help you?
0: Gotcha. Do you like people to have a certain amount, give you enough information to work with to start?
1: Depends. I mean, some people are more comfortable on the phone. Some people, depending on where they are or want to meet, some people would want to send me something. I've had people send me documents of what they want to present to investors, for example, or they want to present to their clientele. And I'll then give feedback and say, hey, okay. And so they might want to send me something and then they want to go over with me and see how I could help with that situation.
0: Gotcha. That's great. Are you able to talk, you had a really interesting business that when we were talking about before with the shade, oh, okay that something that you could talk about? So yeah,
1: I, I could get into that. So I, um, for many years in working at St. John's, was trying to put an indoor facility at St. John's. And for better or worth, I brought in so many companies to try to figure out what would be the optimal structure there. And so when I went into the consulting business, I now spend a lot of time in Miami. And I met someone who was trying to put a structure on top of six tennis courts due to the fact that it rains 120 days a year in Miami Beach. And also in the months of May through September, it gets upward to 100 degrees. And it's hard to play tennis in that weather, That's especially between the hours of, say, 11 a.m. and 5 or 4 p.m. So. Through my network, I got in touch with a company called US Shade, which is based in Dallas. And they're coming from the world of playgrounds and putting shading over playgrounds, building playgrounds and putting shading over playgrounds, as well as shading on baseball fields and tennis courts and shading. And they do some things in West Coast with concerts, with outdoor concert halls and various things. They're in the car business. So They had just done this project in Naples, Florida for US pickleball. So I asked them to come over and bid on a project that was six courts in Miami Beach. And Miami Beach at the time is going through a $100 million bond. $30 million of the $100 million is going toward Parks and Rec. Wow. Yeah. So they had the money to kind of throw something together. Significant money. Yeah. And they had the opportunity. So. This was considered a pre-bidding meeting because the bidding officially doesn't open probably until second quarter of 2018, but it was good to get in there. And this company, USHA, was already renovating the golf driving range for them. So they already had been a proved bidder. they have been approved by the city of Miami Beach, so they wanted to throw their name in the hat and show what they could do. So they designed, and I helped with an urban planner out of Atlanta, and she and I came up with a concept of what would be a great cover and basically, it's trusses that go over in a kind of a, a rounded form. It's hard to describe, but <laughs> it's an interesting look. And then you would put this type of material that mostly shading, but is a little porous on top of it. And we presented it. And it's a great project. And now, through my work with them, they're going to come up with three different models. And that model they initially showed to Miami Beach was the high-end model. So now, through my interest in the company... And going back and forth, we've come up to two other models that are much cheaper. And so this particular situation was a municipality. So they're very concerned with costs. So the structure that they actually suggested probably would be for a private club. So it was a great synergy. We had a lot of meetings, a lot of conference calls. I went to Dallas. I saw the factory. They're building a new factory. They have two now outside Dallas, and they're building a third. I felt very good about that introduction the assessment process, and now how do we get to the next level? So in that particular case, we were assessing each other. What do each of us bring to the table? Then once we went there and then once I went to Dallas and I saw the relationship could be evolved and met the president and owner and met the head of sales and met the engineers and saw all these different people, I felt good about it. So that, getting back to my point before, is the assessment went well. And then- Now it's a matter of how can I help? How can we put this product in the mainstream? How can we put it in not only in Texas, but in Louisiana, Alabama, Florida? That's where we're at.
0: I have a feeling some of your students or your players that have come through your circuit at some point could potentially be some clients too. Yes, correct, correct. Do you stay in touch with a lot of them?
1: Yes, I have. Actually, what's interesting, my former assistant is from Dallas. And so it was very interesting when I told them I was – are going to do this? He's like, listen, I could arrange six meetings for you in one week. I said, oh, yeah, slow down, slow down. Let me let me just get this. We're they, we'll be there in a few weeks. But he was so excited because he has roots there. He's in New York, but his roots are there. And then I get a call, spoke to someone, another one on my network, and they are in Palm Springs, which gets to about 125 degrees. And he's part of this big Bill Gates tennis event That happens every year. So their club does not have any shading. And so that would be a prime spot to put this shading there. And so it's interesting. Just And then I got actually, right, as we were starting this podcast, I got a call from my friend in Houston, who has a friend in Austin, who wants the shade. So I told him, slow down. I'll be back. And so without me even actually doing something, I just kind of throw it out there like I'm doing now. I get five to seven calls.
0: Well, again, back to your point, my point, yeah. you did something, you laid the foundation, you established these relationships years in advance yeah. to be positioned for today. Definitely. Yeah. Very lucky. Yeah. Now, again, you're not lucky, but- <laughs> <laughs> Not lucky, yet. Yeah, yeah. Fortunate. Yeah. So we're almost out of time. Time just flies when you're having fun. Anything in particular that you wanted to ask me before we uh, bolted? Just tell
1: me a little background about how you got to the point where you are doing these podcasts and putting yourself out there.
0: Great question, actually. So my business is about educating people really into a networking mindset, understanding like what networking really is. A lot of people just say, hey, you got to go out and network, but they don't know <laughs> what that means yeah, and they don't realize it's giving and almost everybody. I actually had uh, lunch with a guy the other day who calls himself a meta networker. Wow. Yeah. Big title. And I was listening to him. I'm like, oh my God, this guy, he's boasting what networking is all about. And he's clueless. He's all about bragging about this and that. And I'm like, you don't get it, man. Like you're bad. You're bad for business. (laughs) Maybe good. So the idea is to educate people on what networking really is and how to do it the right way. Simple things, follow through, call checking in on people, just offering to help. Like you said, sometimes just listening to somebody or being there is great. And if you happen to need something, just like what you've built here, you've got people that are like banging, they're excited. They want to have you do things for people and you're doing it selflessly. They're going to want to help you. They're going to want to see you succeed. So I'm trying to get this message out to as many people as possible. And your question about how did the podcast start? That was, to be honest, it was just it's becoming a life of its own. Uh-huh. But a few people said, oh, hey, you've got some really interesting friends that people could learn from. Did you think about doing a podcast? So I'm like, oh, yeah, let's give it a shot. And what's happened is I've already done, I think, about 15 or so, and I've got over 50 lined up. It's been fun. We get really everybody, the criteria to be on this show is to be, first and foremost, a good person. Secondly, to be successful and how I define success is living a life by design, not by default. Yeah. Not just taking some path that you had no control over. Yeah. And then being able to identify your success at least a cornerstone of it through networking, through making that happen. So that's how this came to be. I'm having a lot of fun with it, to be honest with you, because I have a lot of these great conversations and people want to hear, oh, how, what did they do to be successful? Or a lot of times people are like, oh, they're lucky. And even yourself, you've said luck, but it's not luck. It's not luck at all. Yeah, that's
1: not the word. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely I'm fortunate, but I've created the path.
0: Yeah, you did. You 100%. And I hear people uh, a lot of times when they complain that someone else you know, oh, they got lucky or, oh, they just knew the right person. And when I hear that, I'm just like, yeah, they did. So not only did they know the right person, just knowing them is not that. You need to earn its respect and trust. And those are so valuable. Even myself, when I've hired people, I'd rather take someone with a six on the intelligence scale, if they are a nine or 10 on the trust and loyalty, because you knew someone. So yeah, that's my uh, long answer to your short question. And I thought it was an excellent question. So thank you for asking Perfect. that. Anything else that you'd like to talk about before we go?
1: No, I'm good. I think we got a lot out there. And it's obviously, we could spend time doing more. And we'll hopefully do this again.
0: That's the plan. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Eric, you've been great. Thank you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If so, check out some of my others on conversationswithconnors.com. If you're someone looking to build a business, increase your sales, or make a career change, go to networkwise.com. There, you'll have access to a bunch of resources that can help you get started. Thanks again, make it a great day, and remember to always network wise.